part three of Prelude by Catherine Mansfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Seven. On his way home from the office, Stanley Burnell stopped at the buggy at the bodega, got out and bought a large bottle of oysters. At the Chinaman's shop next door he bought a pineapple in the pink of condition, and noticing a basket of fresh black cherries he told John to put him a pound of those as well. The oysters and the pine he stowed away in the box under the front seat, but the cherries he kept in his hand. Pat the handyman leapt off the box and tucked him up again in the brown rug. "'Lift your feet, Mr. Burnell, while I give you a fold under,' said he. "'Right, right. First rate,' said Stanley. "'You can make straight for home now.' Pat gave the grey mare a touch, and the buggy sprang forward. "'I believe this man is a first-rate chap,' thought Stanley. He liked the look of him sitting up there in his neat brown coat and brown bowler. He liked the way Pat had tucked him in, and he liked his eyes. There was nothing servile about him, and if there was one thing he hated more than any other it was servility. And he looked as if he was pleased with his job, happy and contented already. The grey mare went very well. Burnell was impatient to be out of the town. He wanted to be home. Ah, it was splendid to live in the country to get right out of that hole of a town once the office was closed, and this drive in the fresh warm air, knowing all the while that his own house was at the other end, with its garden and paddocks, its three tip-top cows, and enough fowls and ducks to keep them in poultry, was splendid too. As they left the town finally and bowled away up the deserted road, his heart beat hard for joy. He rooted in the bag and began to eat the cherries, three or four at a time, chucking the stones over the side of the buggy. They were delicious, so plump and cold, without a spot or a bruise on them. Look at those two now, black one side and white the other. Perfect. A perfect little pair of Siamese twins. And he stuck them into his buttonhole. By Jove, he wouldn't mind giving that chap up there a handful. But no, better not. Better wait until they had been with him a bit longer. He began to plan what he would do with his Saturday afternoons and his Sundays. He wouldn't go to the club for lunch on Saturday. No, he'd cut away from the office as soon as possible and get them to give him a couple of slices of cold meat and half a lettuce when he got home. And then he'd get a few chaps out from town to play tennis in the afternoon. Not too many, three at most. Beryl was a good player, too. He stretched out his right arm and slowly bent it, feeling the muscle. A bath, a good rub-down, a cigar on the veranda after dinner. On Sunday morning they would go to church, children and all, which reminded him that he must hire a pew, in the sun if possible, and well forward so as to be out of the draught from the door. In fancy he heard himself intoning extremely well, When thou did overcome the sharpness of death, thou didst open the kingdom of heaven to all believers and he saw the neat brass-edged card on the corner of the pew, Mr. Stanley Burnell and family. The rest of the day he'd loaf about with Linda. Now they were walking about the garden, she was on his arm, and he was explaining to her at length what he intended doing at the office the week following. He heard her saying, My dear, I think that is most wise. Talking things over with Linda was a wonderful help, even though they were apt to drift away from the point. Hang it all, they weren't getting along very fast. Pat had put the brake on again. Ugh, oh, what a brute of a thing it was. He could feel it in the pit of his stomach. A sort of panic overtook Burnell whenever he approached near home. 
Before he was well inside the gate, he would shout to anyone with inside, Is everything all right? And then he did not believe it until he heard Linda say, Hello, are you home again? That was the worst of living in the country. It took the deuce of a long time to get back. But now they weren't far off. They were on the top of the last hill. It was a gentle slope all the way now, and not more than half a mile. Pat trailed the whip over the mare's back, and he coaxed her. Go up now, go up now. It wanted a few minutes to sunset. Everything stood motionless, bathed in bright metallic light, and from the paddocks on either side there streamed the milky scent of ripe grass. The iron gates were open. They dashed through and up the drive and round the island, stopping at the exact middle of the veranda. Did she satisfy you, sir? said Pat, getting off the box and grinning at his master. Very well indeed, Pat, said Stanley. Linda came out the glass door. Her voice rang in the shadowy quiet. Hello, are you home again? At the sound of her, his heart beat so hard that he could hardly stop himself dashing up the steps and catching her in his arms. Yes, I'm home again. Is everything all right? Pat began to lead the buggy round to the side gate that opened into the courtyard. Here, have a moment, said Burnell. Hand me those two parcels. And he said to Linda, I've brought you back a bottle of oysters and a pineapple, as though he had brought her back all the harvest of the earth. They went into the hall. Linda carried the oysters in one hand and the pineapple in the other. Burnell shut the glass door, threw his hat down, put his arms round her and strained her to him, kissing the top of her head, her ears, her lips, her eyes. Oh dear, oh dear, said she. Wait a moment. Let me put down these silly things. And she put the bottle of oysters and the pine on a little carved chair. What have you got in your buttonhole? Cherries? She took them out and hung them over his ear. Don't do that, darling. They are for you. So she took them off his ear again. You don't mind if I save them. They'd spoil my appetite for dinner. Come and see your children. They are having tea. The lamp was lighted on the nursery table. Mrs. Fairfield was cutting and spreading bread and butter. The three little girls sat up the table wearing large bibs embroidered with their names. They wiped their mouths as their father came in ready to be kissed. The windows were open. A jar of wild flowers stood on the mantelpiece, and the lamp made a big, soft bubble of light on the ceiling. "'You seem pretty snug, mother,' said Burnell, blinking at the light. Isabel and Lottie sat, one on either side of the table, Keisha at the bottom. The place at the top was empty. "'That's where my boy ought to sit,' thought Stanley. He tightened his arm round Linda's shoulder. "'By God, he was a perfect fool to feel as happy as this.' "'We are, Stanley. We are very snug,' said Mrs. Fairfield, cutting Keisha's bread into fingers. "'Like it better than town, eh, children?' asked Burnell. "'Oh, yes,' said the three little girls, and Isabel added as an afterthought. "'Thank you very much indeed, father dear.' "'Come upstairs,' said Linda. "'I'll bring your slippers.' But the stairs were too narrow for them to go up arm in arm. It was quite dark in the room. He heard her ring tapping on the marble mantelpiece as she felt for the matches. I've got some, darling. I'll light the candles. But instead he came up behind her, and again he put his arms round her and pressed her head into his shoulder. I'm so confoundedly happy, he said. Are you? 
She turned and put her hands on his breast and looked up at him. I don't know what has come over me, he protested. It was quite dark outside now and heavy dew was falling. When Linda shut the window, the cold dew touched her fingertips. Far away a dog barked. I believe there is going to be a moon, she said. At the words, and with the cold wet dew on her fingers, she felt as though the moon had risen, that she was being strangely discovered in a flood of cold light. She shivered. She came away from the window and sat down upon the box ottoman beside Stanley. In the dining room, by the flicker of a wood fire, Beryl sat on a hassock, playing the guitar. She had bathed and changed all her clothes. Now she wore a white muslin dress with black spots on it, and in her hair she had pinned a black silk rose. Nature has gone to her rest, love. See, we are all alone. Give me your hand to press, love. Lightly within my home. She played and sang half to herself, for she was watching herself playing and singing. The firelight gleamed on her shoes, on the ruddy belly of the guitar, and on her white fingers. If I were outside the window and looked in and saw myself, I really would be rather stuck, thought she. Still more softly she played the accompaniment, not singing now but listening. The first time that I ever saw you, little girl. Oh, you had no idea that you were not alone. You were sitting with your little feet upon a hassock, playing the guitar. God, I can never forget. Beryl flung up her head and began to sing again. Even the moon is a-weary. But there came a loud bang at the door. The servant girl's crimson face popped through. Please, Miss Beryl, I've got to come and lay. Certainly, Alice, said Beryl in a voice of ice. She put the guitar in a corner. Alice lunged in with a heavy black iron tray. Well, I have had a job with that oven, said she. I can't get nothing to brown. Really, said Beryl. But no, she could not stand that fool of a girl. She ran into the dark drawing-room and began walking up and down. Oh, she was restless, restless. There was a mirror over the mantel. She leaned her arms along and looked at her pale shadow in it. How beautiful she looked, but there was nobody to see, nobody. Why must you suffer so? she asked. Said the face in the mirror. You were not made for suffering. Smile. Beryl smiled, and really her smile was so adorable that she smiled again but this time because she could not help it. 8. Good morning, Mrs. Jones. Oh, good morning, Mrs. Smith. I'm so glad to see you. Have you brought your children? Yes, I brought both my twins. I have had another baby since I saw you last, but she came so suddenly that I haven't had time to make her any clothes yet, so I left her. How is your husband? Oh, he is very well, thank you. At least... He had an awful cold, but Queen Victoria, she's my godmother, you know, sent him a case of pineapples, and that cured it Im immediately. Is that your new servant? Yes, her name's Gwen. I've only had her two days. 
Oh, Gwen, this is my friend, Mrs. Smith. Good morning, Mrs. Smith. Dinner won't be ready for about ten minutes. I don't think you ought to introduce me to the servant. I think I ought to just begin talking to her. Well, she's more of a lady help than a servant, and you do introduce lady helps, I know, because Mrs. Samuel Joseph's had one. Oh, well, it doesn't matter, said the servant, carelessly, beating up a chocolate custard with half a broken clothes peg. The dinner was baking beautifully in a concrete step. She began to lay the cloth on a pink garden seat. In front of each person she put two geranium leaf plates, a pine needle fork, and a twig knife. There were three daisy heads on a laurel leaf for poached eggs, some slices of fuchsia petal, cold beef, some lovely little rissoles made of earth and water and dandelion seeds, and the chocolate custard which she had decided to serve in the power shell she had cooked it in. "'You needn't trouble about my children,' said Mrs. Smith graciously. "'If you'll just take this bottle and fill it at the tap, I mean at the dairy.' "'Oh, all right,' said Gwen, and she whispered to Mrs. Jones. "'Shall I go and ask Alice for a little bit of real milk?' But someone called from the front of the house, and the luncheon party melted away, leaving the charming table, leaving the risos and the poached eggs to the ants, and to an old snail who pushed his quivering horns over the edge of the garden seat and began to nibble a geranium plate. "'Come round to the front, children. Pip and Rags have come.' The trout boys were the cousins Keisha had mentioned to the storemen. They lived about a mile away in a house called Monkey Tree Cottage. Pip was tall for his age, with lank black hair and a white face, but Rags was very small and so thin that when he was undressed his shoulder-blades stuck out like two little wings. They had a mongrel dog with pale blue eyes and a long tail turned up at the end who followed them everywhere. He was called Snooker. They spent half their time combing and brushing Snooker and dosing him with various awful mixtures concocted by Pip and kept secretly by him in a broken jug covered with an old kettle lid. Even faithful little Rags was not allowed to know the full secret of these mixtures. Take some carbolic tooth powder and a pinch of sulphur powdered up fine, and perhaps a bit of starch to stiffen up Snooker's coat. But that was not all. Rags privately thought that the rest was gunpowder, and he never was allowed to help with the mixing because of the danger. Why, if a spot of this flew in your eye, you would be blinded for life, Pip would say, stirring the mixture with an iron spoon. And there's always the chance, just the chance, mind you, of it exploding if you whack it hard enough. Two spoons of this in a kerosene tin will be enough to kill thousands of fleas. But Snooker spent all his spare time biting and snuffling, and he stank abominably. It's because he is such a grand fighting dog, Pip would say. All fighting dogs smell. The trout boys had often spent the day with the Burnells in town, but now that they lived in this fine house and Bonser Garden they were inclined to be very friendly. Besides, both of them liked playing with girls, Pip because he could fox them so and because Lottie was so easily frightened, and Rags for a shameful reason. He adored dolls. How he would look at a doll as it lay asleep, speaking in a whisper and smiling timidly, and what a treat it was to him to be allowed to hold one. Curve your arms round her. Don't keep them stiff like that. You'll drop her, Isabel would say sternly. Now they were standing on the veranda and holding back Snooker, who wanted to go into the house but wasn't allowed to because Aunt Linda hated decent dogs. 
We came over in the bus with Mum, they said, and we're going to spend the afternoon with you. We brought over a batch of our gingerbread for Aunt Linda. Our Minnie made it. It's all over nuts. I skinned the almonds, said Pip. I just stuck my hand into a saucepan of boiling water and grabbed them out and gave them a kind of pinch, and the nuts flew out of the skins, some of them as high as the ceiling. Didn't they, Rags? Rags nodded. When they make cakes at our place, said Pip, we always stay in the kitchen, Rags and me, and I get the bowl and he gets the spoon and the egg beater. Sponge cake's best. It's all frothy stuff then. He ran down the veranda steps to the lawn, planted his hands on the grass, bent forward, and just did not stand on his head. That lawn's all bumpy, he said. You have to have a flat place for standing on your head. I can walk round a monkey tree on my head at our place, can't I, Rags? Nearly, said Rags faintly. Stand on your head on the veranda, that's quite flat, said Keisha. No, smarty, said Pip. You have to do it on something soft, because if you give a jerk and fall over, something in your neck goes click and it breaks off. Dad told me. Oh, do let's play something, said Keisha. Very well, said Isabel quickly. We'll play hospitals. I will be the nurse and Pip can be the doctor and you and Lottie and Rags can be the sick people. Lottie didn't want to play that because last time Pip had squeezed something down her throat and it hurt awfully. Pooh, scuffed Pip. It was only the juice out of a bit of mandarin peel. Well, let's play ladies, said Isabel. Pip can be the father and you can be all our dear little children. I hate playing ladies, said Keisha. You always make us go to church hand in hand and come home and go to bed. Suddenly, Pip took a filthy handkerchief out of his pocket. Snooker, here, sir, he called. But Snooker, as usual, tried to sneak away, his tail between his legs. Pip leapt on top of him and pressed him between his knees. Keep his head firm, Rags, he said, and tied the handkerchief round Snooker's head with a funny knot sticking up at the top. Whatever is that for, asked Lottie. It's to train his ears to grow more close to his head, see? said Pip. All fighting dogs have ears that lie back, but Snooker's ears are a bit too soft. I know, said Keisha. They're always turning inside out. I hate that. Snooker lay down, made one feeble effort with his paw to get the handkerchief off, but finding he could not, trailed after the children, shivering with misery. 9. Pat came swinging along in his hand. He had a little tomahawk that winked in the sun. Come with me, he said to the children, and I'll show you how the kings of Ireland chopped the head off a duck. They drew back. They didn't believe him. And besides, the trout boys had never seen Pat before. Come on now, he coaxed, smiling and holding out his hand for Keisha. Is it a real duck's head? One from the paddock? It is, said Pat. She put her hand in his hard, dry one, and he stuck the tomahawk in his belt and held out the other to Rags. He loved little children. "'I'd better keep hold of Snooker's head if there's going to be any blood about,' said Pip, "'because the sight of blood makes him awfully wild.' He ran ahead, dragging Snooker by the handkerchief. "'Do you think we ought to go?' whispered Isabel. "'We haven't asked or anything, have we?' At the bottom of the orchard a gate was set in the paling fence. On the other side a steep bank led down to a bridge that spanned the creek, and once up the bank on the other side you were on the fringe of the paddocks. A little old stable in the first paddock had been turned into a fowl house. The fowls had strayed far away across the paddock, down to a dumping ground in a hollow. 
but the ducks kept close to that part of the creek that flowed under the bridge. Tall bushes overhung the stream with red leaves and yellow flowers and clusters of blackberries. At some places the stream was wide and shallow, but at others it tumbled into deep little pools that foam at the edges and quivering bubbles. It was in these pools that the big white ducks had made themselves at home, swimming and guzzling along the weedy banks. Up and down they swam, preening their dazzling breasts, and other ducks with the same dazzling breasts and yellow bills swam upside down with them. "'There is a little Irish navy,' said Pat. "'And look at the old admiral there with his green neck and a grand little flagstaff on his tail.' He pulled a handful of green from his pocket and began to walk towards the fowl-house, lazy, his straw hat with the broken crown pulled over his eyes. "'Lit, lit, 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 lit,' he called. "'Qua, qua, 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 qua,' answered the ducks. Making for land and flapping and scrambling up the bank, they streamed after him in a long, waddling line. He coaxed them, pretending to throw the grain, shaking it in his hands and calling to them until they swept round him in a white ring. From far away the fowls heard the clamour, and they too came running across the paddock, their heads thrust forward, their wings spread, turning in their feet in the silly way fowls run and scolding as they came. Then Pat scattered the grain, and the greedy ducks began to gobble. Quickly he stooped, seized two, one under each arm, and strode across to the children. Their darting heads and round eyes frightened the children, all except Pip. "'Come on, sillies,' he cried. "'They can't bite. They haven't any teeth. They've only got those two little holes in their beaks for breathing through.' "'Will you hold one while I finish with the other?' asked Pat. Pip let go of Snooker. "'Won't I? Won't I? Give us one. I don't mind how much he kicks.' He nearly sobbed with delight when Pat gave the white lump into his arms. There was an old stump beside the door of the fowl-house. Pat grabbed the duck by the legs, laid it flat across the stump, and almost at the same moment down came the little tomahawk and the duck's head flew off the stump. Up the blood spurted over the white feathers and over his hand. When the children saw the blood they were frightened no longer. They crowded round him and began to scream. Even Isabel leapt about crying, The blood! The blood! Pip forgot all about his duck. He simply threw it away from him and shouted, I saw it! I saw it! and jumped round the woodblock. Rags, with cheeks as white as paper, ran up to the little head, put out a finger as if he wanted to touch it, shrank back again, and then again put out a finger. He was shivering all over. Even Lottie, frightened little Lottie, began to laugh and pointed at the duck and shrieked, Look, Keisha, look! Watch it, shouted Pat. He put down the body and it began to waddle. With only a long spurt of blood where the head had been, it began to pad away without a sound towards the steep bank that led to the stream. That was the crowning wonder. Did you see that? Did you see that? yelled Pip. He ran among the little girls, tugging at their pinafores. It's like a little engine. It's like a funny little railway engine, squealed Isabel. But Keisha suddenly rushed at Pat and flung her arms around his legs and butted her head as hard as she could against his knees. Put head back! Put head back! she screamed. When he stooped to move her, she would not let go or take her head away. She held on as hard as she could and sobbed, Head back! Head back! until it sounded like a loud, strange hiccup. It stopped. It stumbled over. 
It's dead," said Pip. Pat dragged Keisha up into his arms. Her sunbonnet had fallen back, but she would not let him look at her face. No, she pressed her face into a bone in his shoulder and clasped her arms round his neck. The children stopped screaming as suddenly as they had begun. They stood round the dead duck. Rags was not frightened of the head any more. He knelt down and stroked it now. I don't think the head is quite dead yet, he said. Do you think it would keep alive if I gave it something to drink? But Pip got very cross. Bah, you baby! He whistled to Snooker and went off. When Isabel went up to Lottie, Lottie snatched away. What are you always touching me for, Isabel? There now, said Pat to Keisha. There's the grand little girl. She put up her hands and touched his ears. She felt something. Slowly she raised her quivering face and looked. Pat wore little round gold earrings. She never knew that men wore earrings. She was very much surprised. Do they come on and off? she asked huskily. End of part three.